Hello and welcome back to Book Chat, the monthly books podcast hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer. I bring one book, she brings one book, and we chat. But remember, the books have to be more than two years old. This month's books are a little more recent than last month's Wuthering Heights and Orlando, and we will get to those shortly. Although it should be said, if it was up to me, we would do Wuthering Heights every month. <laughs> you imagine if we only did books that were more than 200 years old. God, that would be painful. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, we've had some great emails since the last episode. Thank you. Bobby, a different one, not this one, said that partway through Wuthering Heights, she said to her husband, they always make Heathcliff out to be a brooding romantic, but he's a horrible bastard. Yeah, we also also <laughs> have that realisation. And thank you to Lucy, who's been listening in New York. I love hearing when we've got um, listeners from outside the UK and buying the books we've been talking about from a lovely used bookstore on the Upper West Side called Westsider Books. Oh, I want to go to Westsider Books now. It's, it sounds like something out of You've Got Mail. <laughs> It's like so British of us, isn't it? It's like an American being like, that's like something out of Notting Hill. Pandora, what are you reading right now? I've been reading some brilliant proofs for 2023, which I understand is entirely against the premise of this podcast, which is all about rereading and plucking old treasures off the bookshelf. But I am really liking the balance of old and new. Not proofs, for shame. Uh, no, I, I agree. I think I think that's sort of the magic of it, actually. This podcast has forced us into that balance, so we don't have to feel guilty for reading the proofs, which have a tendency to pile up. Yeah, I feel much the better for it, but I do love reading a book before it's come out in the shops. It feels so special. It's such a privilege to get to see it before it hits the wild. And I've actually done a little roundup of books to pre-order coming out this year on my new Substack newsletter, Books and Bits. I'll pop a sign-up link in the show notes, and that is the end of my soft sell. Anyway, currently I am loving the new short story collection from Catherine Heaney called Games... Heaney or Heine? Answers on a postcard. It's called Games and Rituals. She also wrote one of my all-time favourite collections, Single Carefree Mellow, don't love the title, but love the book. It's not that well known as it came out before her mega hit, Standard Deviation. And as such, it's being reissued in May this year. So Games and Rituals, her new one is out in April and Single Carefree Mellow is being republished in May. What about you? I'm on a different vibe because <laughs> I just finished uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold by John le Carre. I'm, I'm like a big, unironic le Carre fan. I... Love The Night Manager, love Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I love all these sort of blustery old spy stories in general. Uh, massive male cliche, I know. This book's his most famous one that I hadn't read, and I was surprised by just how depressing it was, which I think does lead us quite nicely onto your choice for this month, Pandora. <laughs> Before I bum you out, what does an ironic Lacare fan look like? I'm not familiar with the genres of fans. So, I don't know, I think like some people would be like, ooh, I like spy books, uh, but I am a, a, a literary guy, and sort of turn their nose up at it a bit, but I, I am just really into, like... Is he not literary? I think people can be quite snobby about him, which is weird because I think he is a very good writer, a very... I would... You know, he's in that grey area between literary and, and unliterary. Is he, like, in the Colleen Hoover camp, or...? <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we should do her, by the way. I think we should do her. Yes, I think we should as well. <laughs> Colleen Hoover and John Le Carre. Yeah, we'll do them together one month and then we'll find out if they're in the same camp. As ever, Book Chat is a big, meaty discussion about the books in question. I've got to stop using the word meaty all the time. It's so revolting. Anyway, that means that there will be spoilers. My book this month is All That Man Is by David Saloy. It came out in 2016. It's the fourth book by the British-Hungarian writer, and it's thus far the only one of his that I have read, and it was shortlisted for the booker. I'm trying to think where I acquired it, and I think my best friend gave it to me about five years ago. I don't think I bought it. I think I was given it. And it's billed as a novel, but I would call it a collection of short stories about untethered or perhaps rootless masculinity. It's vaguely chronological in that it starts with a story about a teenage boy and it ends with a story about his septuagenarian grandfather, but the men otherwise aren't related, nor are the plots. And I suggested it because it's the only book of short stories I've ever read written entirely from the male perspective, which thinking about it is interesting. Short stories must be a predominantly female domain. What are your initial thoughts, Bobby? So I had never heard of this book or this author, which surprised me because it sounded right up my street when you recommended it. And in many ways, it was. I thought it was uh, really clever, such a nuanced exploration of modern masculinity. But it was also one of the most depressing books I think I <laughs> ever read. It, it, it sent me into a genuine pit of despair you should have seen my face like when i was when i was stepping off the train having read a couple of uh couple of sections do you think it's more depressing than wuthering heights um <laughs> i think wuthering heights has a sort of level of melodrama that allows it to be not too depressing whereas this was so like you could just it was just really real in like a sad, sad way. <laughs> you old softy. I mean, they aren't flattering portrayals of manhood. I will give you that. And it's perhaps not an optimistic look at the world either. But it's sort of tender and depressing. I think it was a bit like a bit of a Shuggy Bane, you know, like a bleakly realistic book. And that, and that's not to say I didn't enjoy it. I, I did think it was a great book. It just wasn't exactly a, a, a barrel of laughs. <laughs> uh, and I maybe would have liked a little bit more levity. But before we get into my my not all men despair monologue <laughs> give us a summary of the book or, or maybe some of your favorite stories from it seeing as it's a, a collection okay so of the nine stories there are four that i absolutely love and that's pretty normal for me with a short story collection to love some to like others and then be ambivalent about a few so my favorites from all that man is are and i think this gives you a real kind of scattershot insight into what it offers Number two, a teenager from Lille goes on holiday to Cyprus and sleeps with a girl one night and her mother the next. Number five, a Danish tabloid editor breaks a story about a celebrity's affair, which he acquires through devious means. Number seven, a jaded, unemployed Brit seeks expat bliss on the Adriatic coast, the reality being less inspiring. And number nine, a Russian oligarch who's lost all his money considers suicide. And, oh my God, even reading those summaries out loud makes me so excited. There's just such a rich texture and the kind of pan-Europeanness of the stories. Anyway, Bobby, expand on your thoughts slash despair. So something I already find really interesting is that our favourite stories are very different. Often happens with us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, especially with this, because I, I found the first two, the ones that were about, you know, teenagers on holiday, a bit listless, a bit meandering. The first one's weak, actually. It's the weakest, the first one, interestingly. 
I yeah, I would agree with that actually. But I I, I loved the third one, uh, which is about a Hungarian bodyguard on this mm. ill-fated trip to London. And I also loved the fourth one, which is about an academic trying to convince his girlfriend to have an abortion. You know, it's it's brilliantly done, even if he's probably the most well, definitely the most dislikable of the characters in a book that's filled with men who aren't exactly lovable and definitely don't love themselves. Not sure if I think he's the most dislikable. Who who is then? Well, Murray's pretty heinous, isn't he? Yeah, t- yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, that true. was quite something. The man trying to convince his girlfriend to have an abortion, and the bodyguard one is also excellent. They're very good choices, to be fair. I mean, generally speaking, the men are rootless, vulgar, and misogynistic, or as one Guardian review put it, existentially marooned. How good is that as a phrase? Existentially marooned. Yeah, I think that sums it up. And that's quite a good way if if you wanted to insult someone but didn't want to hurt their feelings, you could just be like, you're existentially marooned, I think. Well, I sometimes feel existentially marooned. Don't we all? I mean, at least that's what this book seems to suggest. I I, I think that's where my despair came from. No, like not a single one of these nine men was like happy. Uh, definitely not the older ones. And from about the age of 30 onwards, it seemed to suggest that all men think about is how they've wasted their lives and how death is getting closer and uh you know we just talked about about murray the 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 guy on the adriatic coast and you have this one two punch this miserable chalet salesman then murray who's all washed up in croatia that's story (laughs) six and seven they just made me so sad and then that's before like directly before the oligarch whose story is literally about him planning to kill himself so Maybe it's my happy, clappy sensibilities, but I would have liked to just meet one man who was having a nice time. Do you think there's anything in the fact that you are a man facing your 30s and reading it felt like a bit scary, whereas because I'm a woman, I've I've got a distance from the material? Are you saying I'm existentially marooned? <laughs> I'm saying you might be worried about becoming existentially marooned. Well, I I definitely did find that I was drawn more to the stories that were closer to my own age, which I thought was really, really interesting. And I was fascinated by the the tabloid editor one that you mentioned, because, you know, that that I I have been a journalist, I've worked as a journalist, and I, I, I found... I think there was definitely something existential in my in my reading of the whole thing, which made it quite a bleak reading experience. But, you know, hopefully I can find something joyful coming out of it. Yeah, he's happy. He loves his job. Won't leave the office, in fact, even when he doesn't need to be there. I do know what you mean, but I really admire his commitment to these men who are lost and vulnerable and fallible. It It is an unflinching book and they aren't flattering portrayals. There was, there was a review in the Financial Times that I thought put this really well, that Saloy is more interested in getting at the texture of the experience than he is in stuffing it into elegant packaging. So he's not afraid for it to be a bit grim and a bit gross if he imparts what he's trying to impart. So, for example, the short story about Bernard, the teenager from Lille, it made me wince a lot. I mean, it's a great story about the overtness of teenagers. For example, when he's sort of trying to look sexy, he leaves the top three buttons of the shirt undone so that it's opened down to the tuft of hair on his sternum. And he digs in his suitcase for the tiny sample of, can't pronounce that, that was once stuck to a magazine in his uncle's office. He squirts about half of it on himself and then after inquisitively sniffing his wrists, he squirts the other side on as well. Satisfied, he turns his attention to his hair, 
combing back the habitual mop to the line of his skull, thereby disclosing unusually his low forehead and holding the combed hair in place with a generous scoop of scented gel. <laughs> God, I felt that. I felt that. I've been in that position. <laughs> Although I have a massive forehead, so not quite, but... Yeah, that was too real for me. But then I also really don't like the descriptions of the women in that story. They are described as morbidly obese. There's a lot of talk of their grotesque slabs of flesh. But then that is Bernard's voice. That's how he sees these women. And the truth is, like many of the men in this book, men often objectify women. And not only that, they hold them to aesthetic standards that they would never hold themselves. It's not kind, it's not pretty, but and this is the kind of complexity I love in the book, it also doesn't negate Bernard's desire. He ends up having extremely energetic sex with both a mother and daughter that he is slightly revolted by. And I'm aware that that sounds fucked up. It is a bit fucked up. And that's sort of Saloy's point, I think, that male desire can be fucked up, never more so than male teenage desire on its own in Cyprus. Yeah, and I think I think there is an interesting interrogation throughout of of how men see women and then how they see themselves and they they sort of the women they think that they are on a par <laughs> with doesn't really doesn't really mm. tend to line up with with the reality. I I you know, I found those first two stories a bit similar for my liking that they're, they're both about depressed young men on bad holidays who find themselves being seduced by an older woman, uh which for me didn't feel like it summed up the experience of being a a young man as much as the latter stories maybe hit the nail on the head a bit more about being a 30-something or being in middle age or being in old age? Having never been a teenage boy, I sort of don't have the insight to say either way. I listened to him on Radio 4 Book Club and he addresses the fact that these men are all quite unlikable, that they are vain and proud and, as someone put it somewhere, they demand a respect that they have neither earned nor deserved, which I think is very apt way of putting it. And this is what he had to say. I was very keen as well not to sort of romanticize or sentimentalize this concept of the ages of man or whatever i wanted to really root it in some kind of visceral observed contemporary reality i didn't want it to be in any way an abstraction the way it came across so for that reason i aimed to give a unflinching portrayal of these characters and and what their driving ambition, perhaps we could say, at each stage of life. Yeah, I, th I think that is really interesting. And the, and the men, to me, did they all felt very real. I could I could picture them, and there was a, there was a grittiness and a greyness to them. You could imagine sort of seeing them on a on a street corner in the rain, looking unhappy. I think the only one I actually really really wouldn't want to be friends with is Murray. I reckon I could I could press through to friendship with all the others. The Russian oligarch would be quite interesting in his happier moments. <laughs> the teenagers, you know, all the hope is not lost. <laughs> the chalet salesman probably had good banter. <laughs> it was the... Well, you'd get a chalet out of it. It was the... Um, yeah, but the, the chalet sounded so awful. <laughs> I know, yeah. It, it was the Murray story that really... Broke really the camel's back. <laughs> but, but, that, but that's the point of it, isn't it? It's like, it is the you know because he's meant to be living the retirement dream yeah i know and it's just a midlife crisis embodied into this this one painful painful little story generally my favorite bits are those moments of revelation i don't like short stories that don't have that moment and it can be tiny it's actually kind of better when it's tiny luckily this book has one i think in every story i'd have to like double check but i'm going to say at least the bulk so for example when petty alcoholic murray realizes his hubris that nobody likes him 
not the woman whom he fancies, who he always thought was worse looking than him, not the Dutchman who he's who is his best friend, who he always thought was boring, not his brother, who he thinks looks so old. How does he look so old? And he spent so long thinking these people are all below him and that they're sort of lucky to have him in their life that the realisation that they are neither below him nor remotely enthralled to him sort of slightly detest him at worst and at best tolerate him is exquisitely painfully and tenderly delivered. It's really powerful because it, it it's so quiet and and there's no there's no solution to it it's just you, you know it's this moment of realization i think it's on a hilltop and then the story's over you know i i had the same feeling about the ending of the uh of story three about uh Balaj, the the hungarian bodyguard like everything goes wrong for him he realizes that that the, the woman he he fancies has has never really fancied him back at the end he's in a chicken shop and the girl behind the counter she doesn't even smile she just there's like a suggestion of a smile and there's just a hint that he might get a happy ending after all or or as happy an ending as characters can get in this book i also really enjoyed that the stories are set all across europe there's this real sense of motion but also of being untethered and uncontained and interestingly it was published just a few weeks before the brexit referendum which is, yeah, quite interesting. That is interesting. It, it it really feels like a a Brexit book, but but more, I I guess more the the optimistic side of this book is its depiction of of people who feel like citizens of Europe rather than their own countries. So you know you have a a Frenchman in Cyprus, a Hungarian in England, a Danish man in Spain, and so on and so on that sounded like i was setting up a really bad joke but <laughs> yeah it, it, you know the, the the borders don't really mean anything nationalities don't really mean anything it's just like a sort of a european book i think he lives in budapest as well david saloy i love how funny a lot of his writing is he's definitely a comic satirist the teenage bernard is genuinely grateful when charmaine equates his heartbreak at seeing someone else snog the girl he fancies on the dance floor with Charmaine's loss of her husband nine years ago after he drowned in a vat of molten zinc. I mean, it's so daft. Also, he's such a good writer. Murray lies in bed listening to the sound of rain on the window like someone muttering unpleasant truths. How innovative is that? But it also totally works. And can I tell you one more thing I love? I can't stop you. I love that he ties life up with a little bow at the end. Here's the beginning of the last story. And I think in anyone else's hands, this would be a bit trite, but it just really worked for me. And you probably won't like it because it's a bit bum out. One always imagined that there will be some sort of serenity at the end, some sort of serenity, not just an awful sordid mess of shit and pain and tears, some sort of serenity, whatever that might mean. And what that might actually mean becomes problematic up close. Aminus aeterna et non peritura. That would seem to be sound advice if serenity is what one is after. The same problem, though. What is aeterna? What is eternal in his world? Wherever he looks from the loosening skin of his weak old man hands, which somehow don't seem to be his, since he does not think of himself as an old man, to the sun shedding white light on the flat landscape all around, wherever he looks, he sees only peritura. Only that which is transient. It reminds me a bit of Martin Amos. And I've actually only read the Rachel papers by Martin Amos, so I don't know. And it's a little bit Zadie Smith as well. The sordid mess of shit and pain and tears. The the father dying in a vat of molten zinc is very Zadie Smith. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's a very ambitious, but it's one of those sort of doorstopper ambitious books. And I think when you're doing a book that 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 tries to span almost the entire life of all men, 
it was going to have to have a really satisfying take on the end of life. And I think it actually, it nails it. It does it really, really well. I also thought it was a really good penny drop moment when you realised that that last story was from the point of view of the grandfather of the guy in the first story. Because it's this, you know, without once again sounding too trite, it's very circle of life. Uh, And it's one of very few connections as far as I could recognise between the actual stories themselves. The only other one I spotted is that several of the characters across the book watch Iron Man 3. Perfect metaphor for being existentially marooned. And yeah, I don't think any of the others are related. Would you have... I mean, it's quite interesting asking this question with a short story collection where you could sort of drop some and keep some. Would you have changed anything? Definitely some stories were stronger than others. But it's also an interesting question because I suppose from a taste and sort of moral point of view... I really didn't like the way women's bodies were often described. And, I, and I've and i since read that other people felt the same way. But that's also what I admire the most about the, the book, that sort of warts and all dedication to how these men think. And I just really don't think we should be sanitising the minds of people in books. The oligarch doesn't think like that. And the tabloid editor doesn't, although you could argue that he's very dismissive to women by the fact that he's prepared to out a woman cheating on her husband on the cusp of having an abortion with evidence he obtained by essentially stalking her. What about you? What would you change? I agree with that. I I think that these are very believable male characters with very believable, often pretty awful ways of looking at women in the world. And that's, you know, the way that a lot of men think. So, you know, I agree that it shouldn't be sanitised for for, for the sake of the book. It's interesting. When I was thinking about what what I would change, it occurred to me that I'd have liked to have had maybe more of a viewpoint on things like fatherhood, on young love, on on marriage. But then I realised that, that relation it, it almost in, intentionally steps away from that. A lot of these characters are in those situations, but they're not explored. All the men in this book are, are loners, even when they're not actually alone. And I think that that's where all that, that melancholy and that introspection comes from. They all feel alone. They're all failing to find connection, whether they have families and friends or not closest to that is the Danish tabloid editor. I think he's got daughters and it's quite close to them. Yeah, but even even then you only really see them in, you know, in a scene in the car and he says like, hello, and takes them to school and then he's back mm, in his own true, head. True, true. As the New York Times ended their review, it is a bummer and it is beautiful. Will you read any more of him? It is a bummer, <laughs> uh, but, it is, <laughs> but it is beautiful. In fact, talking about it now has made me realise that I actually enjoyed it, I think, more than I thought, even though it did depress me a bit. And I do think a writer approaching modern masculinity in a really frank and refreshing way is something to be cherished. So I will definitely be reading more. I dipped into his novel, London in the South East. Didn't really grab me, but very much in keeping with the men. It's like a depressed salesman. I might go back for another go though. And I very much hope for more short stories from him. Bobby, what have you got for me? She says, like, she doesn't know. (laughs) Keep up the mystique. My book this month is The Reluctant Fundamentalist by the British-Pakistani author Mosin Hamid. Uh, He has twice been shortlisted for The Booker, for this book and for Exit West, which was chosen by Barack Obama as one of his best books of 2017. I feel like that's the very modern way to find out if you've made it as an author, isn't it? To If ex-president Obama shares your book in his end-of-year roundup. It's amazing, isn't it, how he's become this literary arbiter. Any book on that list is now guaranteed bestseller status. And I never knew he was such a big reader before he started those lists. 
The music one really makes me laugh as well. Imagining him typing out Lizzo for some reason really tickles me. Yeah, there's a lot of theories online that sort of, you know, his his like team do the list for him. Had you heard of Moses Hammond before? Had you read any of his books? Heard of him. Hadn't read him until you mentioned how much you loved Exit West. So I read that. I adored that. I think it's so, so clever. And then I read this one when you said you wanted to do it for book chat. So The Reluctant Fundamentalist is about a Pakistani man in America. He's called Shangez. He goes to Princeton. He gets a cushy job. He meets a, a beautiful woman called Erica. It's the American dream, basically. And then it all starts to unravel against the backdrop of 9-11. He starts to question his assimilation into the West at the same time as America starts posturing against and invading the East. But for me, the, the plot isn't actually the most important part of this book. What makes it really interesting is the way that it's told. So it starts with this passage. Excuse me, sir, but may I be of assistance? Ah, I see I have alarmed you. Do not be frightened by my beard. I'm a lover of America. I noticed that you were looking for something, more than looking. In fact, you seem to be on a mission. And since I am both a native of this city and a speaker of your language, I thought I might offer you my services. So essentially, you, the, the reader, are a character in the story. You're an American, seemingly some kind of military government mercenary type. Changez is telling you his life story at this cafe in Lahore. There's this building sense that something sinister might be going on. Literally, the narrator of the book uh, keeps remarking on how twitchy you are, which can't help but make you feel twitchy when you're reading it. It's a really immersive reading experience, which, which Mosin describes as a dramatic monologue. Here's him talking a little bit about that also on uh, Radio 4's book club. And what the dramatic monologue does, and, and the reason why it's called a dramatic monologue, is it's as though somebody's sitting on a stage and they're delivering a oration, like a stage character. It feels like a stage device. But what's wonderful about the dramatic monologue is it, it assumes somebody else is there. The audience is there, another character is there, etc. And because that, that person isn't there in the book, or we never hear that person, so to speak, it forces the audience to fill in the gap, its ambiguities. And then by filling in its ambiguities, the reader becomes aware of the reader's own feelings about things. So this this experimental approach is really typical of his books. As we've established, I sometimes have an aversion to very intelligent literary fiction. So when I discovered Mosin Hamid, I was quite taken aback by how much fun he brings to serious stories just by being creative with the concept. So his most recent book, The Last White Man, is about a world where all the white people start waking up with darker skin uh, and what that does to society. Exit West is a refugee parable about mysterious doors appearing all over the world, which immediately transport people to other places. And The Reluctant Fundamentalist is about exactly what the title says, but it's told in this mix of first and second person, which makes it this really unnerving, tense literary trip, which wasn't really like anything I'd ever read before. Those are such good summaries of his books. And I want to immediately end this recording now and read... The Last White Man, that sounds so good. And you're right, the conceit to his books are always so much fun. I couldn't believe it when the magical doors entered Exit West. You just don't expect it. Anyway, back to the reluctant fundamentalist. So I really loved the use of the unreliable narrator and the way that you're plonked at this at this cafe table with him. I loved that I felt like I was being tricked. Uh, I loved that I felt like I was part of the story. 
I love that I didn't know if this guy was actually untrustworthy or if I was sort of unwittingly playing along with this American outsider who I was inhabiting. It was it, it felt to me almost like one of those choose your adventure, choose your own adventure books you'd read as a kid. But in this case, it was using it to ask some really interesting questions about like Western biases. I also really enjoy that now, but it's interesting. That's a very new thing for me. I used to absolutely hate any kind of shaky foundation when I read a book. I I needed it to be like the ultimate authority, essentially to kind of tell me this is the story and this is what you should believe. And I think relatively recently, but I can't quite put my finger on it, I now really enjoy feeling completely discombobulated by a book. I mean, I think that's ri- that's why I like all that man is. But I had a mixed relationship with that conceit of you being the, or the reader being the American at the table with him. I found it a bit hammy sometimes, the way he would talk to the reader. You know, like, are you feeling okay, sir? You look uncomfortable, sir. I, I can see how it's very clever because it implicates the reader in the story. But I don't love narrators directly addressing the reader. I feel the same when characters on telly break the fourth wall. I think part of it is that I also have really mixed feelings about Changez's very formal delivery, like this part where he describes Erica. I just have a kind of love-hate feelings for. Let me just find it. Not that she was aloof, she was in fact friendly in disposition, but one felt that part of her, and this perhaps was a not insubstantial component of her appeal, was out of reach, lost in thoughts unsaid. Suffice it to say that in relationship to the contemporary female icons of your country, she belonged more to the camp of Paltrow than to that of Spears. It just sounds a bit like a letter to the Telegraph from like a 70-something reader in... Sussex. You can't imagine a bloke sitting opposite you at a cafe table and saying it to you, can you? Um, and yeah, you're right. Sometimes sometimes the narrator does feel a little shoehorned in when he's going like, what are you twitching about? Or like, oh, here comes our waiter. I do think it does its job, though, which is to keep you at the cafe, at the table. Because I think the whole thing really plays with your reading experience, purposefully putting you on edge and not letting you forget that you are in this tense situation. In that respect, it put me in mind of of other brilliant books that address the reader directly as a character. One of my all-time favourite books is If on a Winter's Night, A Traveller by Italo Calvino, which takes the reader on a, on a similarly frustrating journey. As Changez's story goes on, his his perception of America and his his life there changes. Erica drifts away from him. He starts to feel like an outsider. He grows this beard, which he refuses to shave, which makes all of his colleagues uncomfortable. He loses interest in his job. He starts to question everything. And then there's this very haunting, pivotal scene in the middle of the book where he sees 9-11 happen. He sees it play out on a TV screen in his hotel room. And his initial instinct is to smile, not at the casualties, he says, but at the symbolism of it. He says the fact that someone had so visibly brought America to her knees. That's definitely the spiciest bit. And I think if you read it in good faith, you understand that it's about, or if you, at least if you read it in sort of open-minded faith, you realise that it's about him realising that America is fallible, this place he thought was impenetrable, and there's a certain relief for him. And I think then if you read it a little more cynically, maybe you could say that he is a fundamentalist. I think it's ambiguous. I think it has to be. I think it's also, it's it's provocative on purpose and it purposefully avoids an easy answer. You know, there are all these hints throughout that he might be a villain, you know, um, the shady waiter that he might be in cahoots with, 
the other customers in the cafe who disappear as night descends, the fact that you, the American, are seemingly getting edgier, maybe you're concealing a gun. But then you don't actually, when it gets towards the end, and this is, you know, big spoiler warning, you don't actually get the clean-cut ending that I think you're led to expect. You learn that Changez, who has been so profoundly affected by America's military intervention in the Middle East, uh, and it's part in the threat of a, an India Pakistan conflict, you learn that he's a university lecturer in Lahore and a protest organiser. So you get this sense that maybe that's why it's in the American interest to label him a fundamentalist. And then there's this hint that you're there as an emissary of the American government sent to shut him up. So maybe you're the villain after all. And then, of course, you look at yourself and what you have brought to the book. Exactly. You you question everything like he did. Because there is a, a very valid reading of this where Changez was never a bad guy and you've let your character's biases influence your own understanding of this friendly foreigner in a foreign place. As Mosin said in that in that BBC interview, your feelings have have predicted an outcome which might not be the case. So essentially it, it, it flips the accepted Western narrative. After all, your character is the stranger imposing your presence on this place, bringing the threat of violence. As Changez puts it in this this great line, you should not imagine that we Pakistanis are all potential terrorists, just as we should not imagine that you Americans are all undercover assassins. And I think when you're laying groundwork like this in a novel, it's it's all about the payoff, you know, the, the, all that deception, all that posturing, the dramatic monologue. It has to be worth it at the end. And in this book, it is. The ending's just perfect. You 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 don't know what happens. You know, there's there's this this scene where the American reaches into his pocket and that there, there might be a scuffle or there might not, and then it just sort of fades to black. You don't know where things went. But why are you reaching into your jacket, sir? Do I detect a glint of metal? Are we meant to assume he is reaching for a gun? Well, the last line says that it might be a business card holder um, and that it might be a friendly goodbye after all. And there's something almost funny in the fact that it's like, after all that, that they were actually just mates and they shake hands and exchange business cards or one of them shoots the other. The beauty is, after all that vagueness, it's up to the reader to decide in the final... In the final... In the final words? <laughs> Unless you watch the film and then I seem to remember it has a particularly explosive ending of course it i bet there's a car chase yeah i think there's 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 a shootout i feel like there's a shootout very hollywood um are there any reviews that you particularly agreed or disagreed with i haven't actually read in any of this karen olson did a review in the new york times called i pledge allegiance where she said a less sophisticated author might have told a one-note story in which an immigrant's experiences of discrimination and ignorance cause his alienation. And I think that hits the nail on the head. A lot of Mosin's books have concepts which could be a little bit on the nose, you know, the magic doors to other places in Exit West, the white people turning darker in The Last White Man. But he's such a good writer that he always brings a, a depth and a heft to make these stories really profound and, and deserving of their premise. One thing I did find really interesting about this book in terms of not being one note and not being on the nose is how religion isn't really a part of it. Because it would it would have been very easy and definitely less nuanced to make it a book about Christianity versus Islam. Yeah, it's more of a cultural thing, isn't it? He's constantly told how deferential he is. Like in America, they can't believe how deferential he is, how hard he works, how polite he is. And it's actually only when he grows his beard and says, oh, well, it's very common where I come from for the men to have beards, that people start to say, oh, but we don't like everything about your culture. Do you think he knew what he was doing with his beard? I can't tell if it was his way of trying to rebel within this very privileged, white, Ivy League, Western environment of the company he works at. 
or if he's just starting to feel really homesick. I think there's an element where it's just him letting himself go. And then because his white colleagues only ever see him through the prism of being a foreigner in a post 9-11 world, the beard feels like it has to mean something. And that in itself is is the meaning. I mean, for a bit of context, this book was written at the height of the Iraq war. Bush was still president. The questions of, of fundamentalism on both sides, which which the novel asks, have only become more potent since it was published. This is a book which predates both ISIS and the alt-right. Um, so I think it's amazing how how relevant it feels in, 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 in terms of its approach to those topics. And I haven't read a lot of fiction which tackles radicalization. I think it's it's a topic that has so many grey areas that it makes white westerners, even liberal white westerners, really uncomfortable. I mean just just look at the ongoing coverage of of Shamima Begum. I mean I recently read Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi, who's who's another Pakistani British author, and I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. It's got the same bravery, the same unflinching intelligence that this book has and and it's very similar in having one of the maybe one of the best last pages of of any contemporary novel. Oh my god, that ending. It's yeah, mythical. If you liked Home Fires, you or Home Fire Singular, you should read The Runaways by Fatima Bhutto. Would you have changed anything? I think Erica, um his sort of not quite girlfriend, I think her character was a was a bit on the nose for everything we were saying about things being on the nose. I mean, she's got a name that's short for America. <laughs> I had not clocked that. Do you think that's deliberate? I, I think even if it isn't, you know, it, it, it it's there. It, it is, and it, and it does fit her character because she's got this this really obsessive nostalgia for her uber-American boyfriend who is dead and is therefore sort of unimpeachable and unattainable. And I think both he and her are this big metaphor for America itself and for that patriotic nostalgia for the good old days especially in the aftermath of of 9-11 the whole thing with, with her ex-boyfriend and with with american nostalgia it just felt a little bit forced to me that's a very literary interpretation from you i now feel a bit basic because i just thought oh she's just really sad she's just grieving i hadn't linked her wistfulness to america's patriotism and i think that's that's a really smart point i mean she is clearly also depressed and grieving yeah, I think I mean, she she is also a very sad character, and and because of that, a lot of the a lot of the sex stuff between between her and Changes just felt quite gross and uncomfortable. Although I, I mean, I guess that was kind of the point. Um, and 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 Mosin does write these doomed, dissolving relationships really well, but but it was uncomfortable to read. I found the sex scene deeply uncomfortable. I mean really kind of notably will stick out for me uncomfortably. He has to pretend to be Erica's dead lover in order for her to be able to relax enough to have sex with him. And it felt really exploitative of him. Like he knew she wasn't ready to sleep with him. Least favourite scene of the book. But then would I change it? No, I think it's important. It adds nuance and complexity to his sort of esoteric gentlemanliness. Like it, it made me like him less and it makes him like himself a lot less their relationship also really doesn't work on screen have you seen the film i have not seen the film interestingly when you were just saying that i there's an element of assimilation there isn't there in in him pretending to be her dead boyfriend that it's like he can only be loved in america if he like if he's american pretends to be the american yeah mm. so i mean i guess there are there are more layers to it that, that keep coming up and it, that's that's what's so good about um about 
him as an author, he he's very good at layering these things. Um, no, I haven't seen the film because you told me not to bother. Oh. <laughs> um, I I think this is a pretty unfilmable book because so much of what's good about it is is literally how the story is told on the page. So I was worried that watching the film would ruin it for me. I honestly wish I hadn't watched it because I can't separate it from the book now. And it's got this all-star cast and Riz Ahmed is very good at acting, but he's nothing like the Chongas of the book. He's really cocky and flirty. Kate Hudson is nothing like the Erica in the book. You know, Erica is really grieving. She's removed physically. She's just completely untouchable and remote and sort of vague. But then on screen, she's really sensuous and sexual and self-possessed. They have a lot of sex. And I just feel like they sort of gutted the book and sexed it up for screen and made it all Hollywoody. Like Erica and Chongas, they don't have that physical relationship. Her entire body is screaming for Chris. Yeah, it felt like they made a completely different film, basically. Yeah, I'm glad not to have watched it then. I mean, I I so often watch adaptations of books and and. I'm disappointed and then exactly as you said bang you can only picture the film when you think of the book it's it's one one day syndrome well i love both to be fair and i will likely love the netflix series too i am actually very excited about the netflix series yeah has Mosin Hamid gained a fan in Pandora Sykes? Will you be reading more of him? Oh absolutely i bloody loved exit west um i've already bought it for my sister for her birthday i liked very much liked The Reluctant Fundamentalist and actually talking to you about it and all of your onion unlayering, unpicking has made me like it even more. I really want to read The Last White Man. And I have Moth Smoke. Is it Moth Smoke on my bedside table? Yes, it is Moth Smoke. And he's got another one called, I think it's called How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, which is such a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant book title. So I want to read that one as well. So we're big fans. We're both big fans now. His titles are very good indeed. So yes, let's give that a big fat yes. Thank you so much for listening as ever. If you have any thoughts you want to share, do email us at bookchatpod at gmail.com. Otherwise, we're back on the 1st of April. April Fools! If you want to read along with us, our books for April's episode are Memorial by Brian Washington and The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides. Book Chat is hosted by Pandora Sykes and Bobby Palmer, with sound by Joel Grove and production by Pandora Sykes. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>